It is a day late, but it is nonetheless. The Weekend Sports Cars on the Marshall Pro Podcast. I normally say hello to my brother, Graham Goodwin, of DailySportsCar.com. For the very first time, no Graham Goodwin on the other end of the line while I am recording. It is his young Jedi, my stand-in, now Graham's stand-in for the week, Stephen Kilby. Hi, Marshall. It's uh, yeah, it's good to be back on the pod as always. It's uh, weird to be two per- uh, stunt double for two people. Well, you'd have to gain a lot of weight to beat my stunt double, but that's just fine. Got a lot of questions that have come in this week. Many of them, I think, because in terms of major events centering on IMSA, since we just had a corker of a race at Road America, but as usual, we have our. Weck, Aslam, Echo, Elms. We also have some general. We also have some fun. I normally kick to Graham to choose which category we start in. In honor, though, since it's the first time I'm having you on the Week in Sports Car podcast, and it's the two of us, gotta hand that decision baton to you, young Mr. Kilby. Where shall we go first? Well, it's an absolute honor. And I will say IMSA. We've had, a, as you say, we've had a corker of a race over the weekend, and I think all the listeners are going to be eager to eager to dive into that topic. Well, I love the fact that you've lied to me already and said that it's an honor. But why don't we get rocking and rolling? And since the format here is on the IMSA side, that tends to be my domestic domain. Either you or Graham will throw the questions my way, and when we move to the WEC and otherwise. I'll foist those in yours, your direction. So why don't you go ahead and start lobbing away, my man? Yeah, let's go for it. We'll start with Smoking Puppy 841. He says, a question about our favorite three letters, B-O-P. See, Marshall, it took like 30 seconds, and we're already on <laughs> our favorite topic. Isn't it fantastic? He says, um, what do you think needs changing in DPI? Personally, I think Acura and Mazda seem about right, but Cadillac needs to be sped up still, and Nissan are near the pace, but not at it yet. All right. Very first thought. I don't know if we've ever had to reprimand a listener before, but I'm just saying, smoking puppy 841. You send in questions just about every week. Leads me to believe you listen almost every week. The fact that you would say personally instead of hashtag me personally, I just feel like we got to have a bit of a timeout here. I mean, that's that's the official standard, right, Stephen? If you're going to use the word personally, mm. it's got to be the official Marshall Pro podcast. Hashtag me personally. Um, kidding aside, I'm with you. I think the world is with you on BOP needs. It's been a while since we started off the show with BOP. It's actually only tapered down uh, over months and months, but. It's been clear for a good long while that Cadillac is out of sorts in terms of balance. The thing that it would be really hard, Stephen, for anyone to argue against at IMSA is this. The highest place Cadillac at the most recent round where no yellow flags were involved, nothing to stop the two hours and 40 minutes of action on outright pace. The best Cadillac was something like 70 seconds arrears. And this is the defending series champions. This is Felipe Nazar. This is Pippo Durrani having joined the team. But this is Nazar, who is as fast as they come in the car that won the whole thing last year. 
and he driving his little skinny Brazilian behind off more than one minute behind on outright pace. It's not as if it came as a surprise. The Cadillacs have been over penalized, if you want to call it that, for a while now. But this, to me, has been a really big shock. They obviously ran the table the first three races of the year, won the two biggest events, Daytona and Sebring, continued that at Long Beach, hit pretty hard since then. What has surprised me the most, and I know we have some other questions, Stephen, coming up related to Mazda and some other BOP-ish type things about swinging of that balance. I've been shocked that Cadillac has been left in a place of performance irrelevance for so long now, knowing that they have two more races left. (laughs) Won the first three. There's two to go. That means that there are five in the middle. not saying they were totally out of sorts at all five, but in particular, absolute irrefutable evidence that there was no chance of fighting against the Mazdas or the Acuras or even the lone Nissan at Road America. Uh, The Nissan did seem to be in pretty happy place for sure. Uh, The Acura and Mazda really... That's another aspect of BOP, Stephen, that it's hard to manage because what we saw with the Acuras, obviously being fastest and qualifying, just dominating the first hour of the race, the minute they Mm. appeared to start to get on to used tires towards the latter portion of the race, really did see the higher rear tire consumption rate negatively affect the Acuras and certainly play to Mazda's best handling vehicle in the series uh distinction help those rt24ps come to the fore so some things you can change through bop take weight uh, off the vehicles provide more power it's really hard though when we're talking about one brand being a little bit heavier at the rear than maybe its other direct rival in mazda and burning off those rear tires and the mazdas just simply being supremely balanced and that being the differentiator. Even from the overhead, Stephen, to close on this, you might have seen from the camera angles, heading on to a long straight at Road America, you might see the Mazda get a good run on an Acura and thinking, all right, wow, let's see what happens towards the end of the straight. Didn't need to. Halfway down the straight, Mm. you saw the Acura pulling an advantage on power. So the Mazda's at least as I saw it, doing so well this past weekend. It wasn't about BOP being out of balance and them being overly advantaged. It was, all right, they're not winning in a straight line for sure. Wow, what they're able to do in cornering phases and braking phases and immediate acceleration off corners, that was really impressive. Mm. No, I completely agree with you there. But it is, and I'm sure you'll agree, it's strange watching an IMSA race and seeing teams like Action Express and Wayne Taylor Racing just kind of not being there, like at the front. It's just odd. It's just it's like watching it and you're thinking, there's something not right here. Oh, that's right. The Cadillacs are so far behind, they're not even getting any screen time. If you're a fan it's, of turbocharged Japanese prototypes, IMSA's been fantastic this summer. <laughs> if you're a fan of American Iron... Um, yeah, you've maybe been wondering where some of the well-established stars, the three most or the most recent championships, have all fallen 
to teams under the uh, the bow tie banner. And so, yeah, exactly. Bizarre to note that, mm. yeah, Wayne Taylor Racing, eh, not really a factor. Uh, Action Express, not really there. Heck, the JDC Miller Cadillacs, if anything, were were the stronger representatives for a little while uh, as well. So, yeah, all kinds of wackiness. I really hope when we get to the next round for DPIs, that being at my home track at WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca, we're talking about a proper all-DPI manufacturer battle. I want to have question marks as to which brand will cross the finish line first. Not, if we applied what we've seen recently, Stephen, which Acura or which Mazda is going to win. That's not in IMSA's best uh, decision or or best interest to have this kind of sort of have the thing pared down to one of two manufacturers at every round thing continue, even if it was, say, Cadillac and Nissan winning everything, which was more or less the case last year and even the year before that that wasn't in their best interest so getting all four manufacturers or at least three of the four to be really really close i would welcome its return mm. agreed agreed next question john foreman he says it was confirmed that Ford performance wouldn't be coming to the dpi party until 2022 which is a shame but still great news for dpi in 2022 are there any chances of a customer gt programs in the next two years um ford did tell its drivers not to look for seats so had a little bit of a uh, exchange with John on the good old Twitters where this came in, just confirming his confirmation. Uh, so there's just a little bit of a misunderstanding here. No, no foul whatsoever. Uh, there's no confirmation that Ford would be coming in 2022 whatsoever. Uh, John read a story on a site that is not racer and that is not DSC that I guess, however it was interpreted, um, was interpreted that, Ford had said, yes, they are coming in 22. Just clarified with John that, no, that is not the case. And also just from a practical standpoint, that news would be on every major automotive website in the world. Uh, It would not be reserved to a small niche sports car website being the only one with that news. So while a small sports car website might break that news, it certainly would not be the only place you would then find it within five minutes of that going live. So, the story that John saw mentioned that Ford will not be entering DPI next year, which I would say in early August is not a non-story. Kind of we've known that. Um, has also said that the manufacturer is interested in 2022 DPI and looking at that, something we've known and spoken about and written about many times. So the real thing here which also ties into the next question from Darren Dubois of who drives for Ganassi and IMSA next season, and is Nick Manassian available? Um, this is a really interesting thing, Stephen. So we don't know what Ford will do. We hope they will decide to come back in 22. I have hmm. heard just as recently as this week yet again confirming something that we mentioned last week, which I said I had gotten confirmation on behind the scenes that the GTs will not be returning next year in a factory capacity. There was truly an effort, uh, a strong desire for that to happen after Le Mans and commissioning a new contract. It was explored. It did not happen. Um, That is still the case. So I would say we can finally 
put a the last nail in the factory GT effort in IMSA happening next year. We know that's already been uh, scuttled for the WEC uh, in the upcoming super season. So without mm-hmm. Ford on the grid with something new next year, are there chances of customer GT programs? Answer is yes. Uh, another thing I have to check in with uh, the brand on to see how that's coming along in terms of potential sales who might want to buy and then run them. That I would say is a very interesting one, Stephen, because it's the case of who wants to buy the cars. Sure. Uh, I'm sure the minute race used, possibly race winning four GTs are available for sale. Collectors are going to want to dive in immediately and get them. We know they're going to be worth a Mm. lot of money when you're old and gray you'll be going to Goodwood or wherever and seeing auctions and these things that you covered in your youth going for untold trillions of dollars and going, damn it, I should have tried to buy one back then. We know that's going to take place. (laughs) Where, again, interesting, and I don't honestly have answers on who yet. I'm struggling to think of how many funded people exist with the millions of, and the desire to buy a race-used Ford GT from this IMSA program or WEC, whatever, and use it over here at least, I don't that, – that's a part where I'm struggling. You could look at existing teams, say, in IMSA's GTD category. And, yeah, there are some folks there definitely have money, definitely like doing their thing. This is a different level of funding, though. <laughs> this isn't I'm going to buy a Porsche GT3 car and go do GTD type budget. This is, ooh, uh, yeah, this ain't cheap, boys and girls. So I think, to come back to John's primary question, I don't think Ford's going to have a problem with folks reaching out saying we'd like to buy one. I think where there could be some question marks and some longer efforts involved is if Ford performance truly wants to see the GTs continue, albeit in private hands with some factory assistance paid for and provided. I think those teams, people, etc. I think they might be a little bit more elusive than originally anticipated. Ben Keating buying one to be able to do Le Mans and who knows from there. Ben's a unique cat already in the series has the money to do it, etc. Don't know how many other Ben Keatings are out there uh, who would then want to take that car and truly race it all season long. Even Ben has said that really isn't what he's thinking with the Ford GT that he owns. And to wrap up Darren's question, I don't know if Ganassi is going to be racing in IMSA next season. I do believe from some things that I've heard, not saying they're accurate, but I think that there's something there. I think they could become involved in a development program for something that would be coming to IMSA. But as for will, will Ganassi be on track racing next year that I I'd say I'm at 50, 50 right now. It could be a meaningless 50, 50 Steven. It could be a hundred percent. They know it and they are already planning and they're <laughs> listening like you idiot. Uh, it could be 0%. But at least from the things I've been hearing, even based on a conversation I had yesterday with someone where I said, hey, I heard Ganassi might be in the frame to run a specific program you're affiliated with. Uh, is there anything there? And the answer was no, um, not at all. I was like, oh, OK, that's that's the only one that made sense uh, of a couple. 
but I have heard that there could be another thing coming in the in the wings. Um, and also drawing back to John's note, very true. Uh, the current Ford GT drivers are indeed looking for opportunities next year. What I have heard, though, is dynamic has changed from the time where both drivers and members of the team were reaching out in the paddock, talking to folks, seeing what might be available for next season. I've heard that has changed to where it's just drivers. So that's the interesting part. Obviously, we will fill Mm. you in when we have more. Yeah, so we're going to continue with some DTLM stuff here. We've got Adam Kapiski on Facebook. He says, good evening, gents. So since GM had two of the latest 2020 C8 Corvettes at the track, fans look over. Has there been any rumblings from GM or Pratt & Miller on when the C8 R will break cover and is there a chance of it playing in hypercar as a ZR1? He also sends his best wishes to you and your lovely wife. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so this is another one. Lots of fun stuff, right, Stephen? Like, hey, what's it oh, going to yeah. be next year? I love the fact that we can't say exactly on a number of things. So We love new. Yes. Well, would say that on the... New is always better. Yeah, well, I don't know about always. Although we did, <laughs> I did seem to recall writing something along those lines while announcing the Nissan GTR, GT1, LMP1, Hybrid R1, GTLM in 2015, and... Boy, that's in the, if I could go back and rewrite a story uh, list for sure. Can't say exactly, obviously, uh, on the uh, C8R for when they will break it free uh, in any kind of public setting prior to Daytona next year. We know that they announce it's coming to Daytona next year. That's great. So we do indeed anticipate seeing it um, in and of itself in GTLM starting next season beyond that though uh would say for sure and this i know is another question that we've had and, and comes in a bit could it play in the whack how could it knowing timeline and cycle wise we're you know got a super season coming up here quickly um homologation and blah 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 you know those are the things that i can't answer for sure but would say that there's definitely a chance that we could see it somehow if the folks in good old FIA and ACO land wanted it to be there, Stephen, what would just say mm. coming back to Adam's primary question, we know we're going to see it in GTLM form. I've not heard a thing about it being uh, hypercar DPI, anything like that. And I do believe that just branding wise, they really have tried to differentiate between production-based GT equals Corvette and anything else adventurous of late, at least, has been Cadillac. Obviously, prior to this, they did brand their DP as a Corvette, which was just, I think, a convenience more than anything. But at least over the last couple of years, especially since Cadillac has come out of GT3-based competition and just been in the prototype front, I'd... I'd struggle to see how the Corvette C8 would then also be imprinted upon a hypercar uh, chassis or anything even DPI. So I think, Adam, mm. we're just going to see it in GT form. Yeah, I and mean, from the conversations I've had with people 
um, in Corvette racing, I, I don't think there's an appetite at all for them to go hypercar. In fact, I think that some of the more senior people within the Corvette racing program are not particularly impressed with the hypercar regulations. That's my understanding. I think there could be a chance we see it in WC, maybe as a GTLM car, but I, I really don't think they're going to dive in and, and do a full hypercar program. I'm in so, agreement. Should we count? Keep it rolling, yeah. baby. You're in agreement? Yeah. Next question from Mitch Mortensen on Facebook. He says, so Road America this Sunday, the Acura Penske of Juan Montoya got a warning for blocking, although it wasn't uh, although it wasn't uh, Regius. There were blocks thrown and there was a bit of retractive driving. On the last lap of the race, Harry Tinknell for an almighty block that Dane Cameron didn't really look ready for. He was clearly starting the, uh, staring in the mirror. Um, and this went without warning at all from IMSA. The inconsistency really had me concerned here. Does anything go on the last lap? Here's the thing, as I saw it. The Montoya blockages uh, mid-race, I thought that was far more egregious than what happened on the final lap with Harry defending slash blocking with Dane. As it took place for me, we certainly had a situation where if I'm having to call what was worst between the two, uh, I am absolutely staring at the one taking place between Mon- or the, the one initiated by Montoya as being the worst. So yeah, what happened at the end of the race? I didn't necessarily see that as an exception. Mitch, I didn't see that as, ah, it's the end of the race. You know, whatever happens, happens. Rubbin's racing. I saw this as absolute consistency. Uh, And and again, in terms of a warning, I I don't view the warning of Montoya, but maybe not warning of Tignal as being inconsistency. I would say it happened at a stage of the race with Montoya where there was a lot of race left. Where it happened with Tinknell, there was 30 seconds left in the race. Um, Knowing that from a review standpoint, IMSA will do that, will want to look at the footage, review, and then pass down whatever it is. I just don't think that there was time. So I didn't so much see inconsistency there. If anything, I saw consistency in the non-application of some sort of penalty. Uh, They didn't penalize Montoya when he was just frankly being his Montoya-ish dickish self blocking and when Harry did the same thing to Montoya's teammate in the same car but with the roles reversed it it seemed to fit a standard that IMSA gave the thumbs up on and there we go so uh, I I'm good with how things went down if that's how the Acura driver is going to treat the Mazda driver I can't really see any flaws in the Mazda driver doing it back to um, their respective teammates or whatever, uh, dealing with things in the same way. So I'm good with all that. Don't don't definitely believe it's a last lap anything goes thing, but who knows? Maybe that's going to become the new IMSA standard. (laughs) Next up, we've got a really positive question from from ed horace on facebook oh, ed, he always, says, Marshall, ed always brings the positivity wink wink yeah, nudge, yeah. Nudge. this is incredibly positive he says which marriage ends up in divorce first mazda radio or accurate team penske <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I <laughs> would say if this implode or anything. Oh yeah, I would say if this question had been asked six weeks ago, it just there would be no question. It'd be Mazda and Yost. I would say after three wins on the trot, it would be very hard to justify splitting with Yost. I know that Ganassi had been a team that, at least I mentioned a while ago, might be something for Mazda to consider. There's been no reason to consider it. And I think even if there was a, a somewhat odd desire to make that happen still today, Stephen, can't believe that would get by anybody on any kind of you know board of decision-making at Mazda. Uh, they signed off on the change from Speed Source to Yoast. Yoast did not flatter themselves by any means when they took over in 2018. Even first portions of 2019 weren't glorious by any stretch, but... They have found the competitive stride and the consistency we we believed that they were capable of. So if I'm given an either-or between the two, uh, the Team Penske deal has one more year left on it with Acura. Uh, I've definitely heard things, been hearing things for a while, actually soon after the program hit the ground, that... might lead me to believe that there could be others under serious consideration for taking over the Acura program after uh, 2020, Stephen. So between the two, Ed, uh, I would say in light of all the recent wins, we can take Mazda and Yoast off that board, and it would only leave the other option you've given, which is Acura Team Penske. Mario Valoria says... What, would Portland International Raceway have been a good venue for another GTLM, GTD-only race? I've attended several races there when the LMS visited and loved the racing and atmosphere. I would have to say yes. It reminds me of a flat VIR, flat and shorter VIR, has two very good straights, has some twisty bits. Certainly, they're a lot of fun. Some of those twisty bits invite looking in and late dives under braking, getting a car a little bit wide to try and, you know, nudge it a little bit, loosen it up to try and pass it at the end of the straight. I think it would be a blast. What I think, though, Mario, is if it were to happen, and I do believe endurance racing needs to return to the Pacific Northwest for sure, this would need to be presented. If it is a GT only, it would need to be something unique not just a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon race, some kind of maybe four hour uh, from late afternoon into evening, some sort of party transition race where we start in the fading sunlight and head into darkness, bring your barbecues, uh, bring your beer, have some fun and watch a four hour endurance race, uh, maybe on a Saturday night going into darkness and enjoying that portland is a it's a fun town it's a party-ish experiential type town and so i think if this were to happen just doing a standard two hour and 40 minute race uh, in a regular type scenario i don't think it would do much if it was presented as a real fun party transition into night and just come and make a, a real celebration out of it type thing i think that would connect very very well uh, with the spirit of the general area so love the idea mario i think you have a true true winner here 
for IMSA to consider? Another another really positive question from Ed Horace here on Facebook. He says, I can't get over the impression that IMSA in its DPI POP process is not as much picking winners as Actually, I think they pretty much are picking winners. Why can't we go to a system where body characteristics have to fit into a certain aero envelope, the engines have to fit in a certain power torque envelope, and then leave it alone? IMSA has facilities to do the tests. As it stands, I think IMSA was given Mazda the benefit of the doubt until they won two races and then pinned the back. Now they win a third race and then what? whatever happened to Cadillac, you get the idea. <laughs> Marshall? Yeah, I mean... Here's what we know if since Mazda has been cited as the, the standard here. We've been saying since the roar before the 24, Mazda's ready to win. The cars are fast enough. They were ready to win a couple of races last year. I mean, Harry Ticknell was a very short amount of time away from making it happen at the track that they sponsored, Mazda Raceway Laguna Seca. So they've been close. They've been there, thereabouts. Can't argue that a bit of BOP assistance helped get them kind of over the hurdle to help. But we also have a fact where this is the system everyone accepts. And so I mean this is the this is the standard routine, Stephen. So DPI Formula launch in twenty seventeen, Cadillacs were so much better than anything else. They just destroyed, just devastated the opposition and IMSA race by race was coming up with all kinds of crazy stuff to slow them down. Uh, I know we've mentioned this before in the podcast, even to the point of dictating gear ratios that could be uted used. Please document uted as a word I just made up. Um, just crazy links to try and not allow Cadillac to have a quote BOP advantage. And it wasn't so much BOP advantage. It was the car just in the brand new formula was so much better than everyone else's. So through BOP, IMSA went to work to try and kick the legs out from Cadillac race by race. And it took barely, it took essentially a half season, a little more than a half season for them to get there. So as we're talking about, a brand being advantaged, another one being disadvantaged. This is just the normal cycle. Whichever brand is the latest one to get the thing that helps or doesn't get the thing that isn't helping, it just constantly moves. So I hear what you're saying, Ed, about could they change to this style? Sure, they could. They could throw BOP away. I want it to go away. Who doesn't want it to go away? Um, but it's what they've chosen. The manufacturers have opted in. I think there's some Stockholm syndrome going on. Nonetheless, it, as I do my best Juan Montoya, is what it is. And so as we head into, for DPIs in this example, to Laguna Seca and Road Atlanta for the final two races, I'm positive there will be BOP changes that move the baton of happiness to one brand away from another. Uh, will Cadillac be back and competitive again? I got to believe they will. Um, so by the time we are done with Monterey, Stephen, I would be very surprised if it, if we aren't staring at a Cadillac one, two, three, four, five in the results and Acura Mazda Nissan saying, what the hell? 
And again, who knows what it will be at the next race. This is just the dynamic. So for me, unless it's crazy, like we had to start 2017 where one brand just, you couldn't find ways to penalize them enough to balance the field. You tend to have these streaks Mazda with three in a row. Look at GTLM, you know, Porsche's won half the races this year. I think one, you know, basically half the season in a row almost. Mm. you know it's uh, amazing it's isn't it because it's, it's flawed but it's the system they've chosen and the system manufacturers opt into until the manufacturers i mean like any govern any form of governance until the people rise up and say no <laughs> we no longer accept this there must be change until that happens and everyone opts into the way things are and the status quo being bop this passing of the baton happens in every class where it's used yeah, it's, it's, there are some similarities here on the Marshall with Toyota in the WC. I mean, the amount of years that people were up in arms about them at Le Mans and they can't win it and we really want them to win it and everyone's rooting for them. And, you know, people are going crazy and they almost win it, win it a couple of times. And then they win, a, win it once and then they win a few races on the bounce and all of a sudden everyone's kind of like bored of it. And it's kind of the same thing with Mazda for me. It's like everyone's desperate for Mazda to win. They win three races in a row, and everyone's like, hang on a minute, whoa, what about Cadillac? Exactly. I tell you, know, I do. We, you raise a great point, though. I mean, I really do have to take the WC to task and the ACO. I mean, all that's happened for a while now are, Mo, are, are Toyota victories. I haven't seen Audi win a thing in a really long time. So, I mean, I'm just saying they really need to consider what they're doing with BOP there. Mm, 100%. 100%. We've had, um, I think you've, you've kind of gone over some of these points. Question from Jerry Harden about the mood at Mazda and them turning the corner. And I think you kind of, you've been through that. One about the CAR timeline from Michael Breedick, um, which we've gone over. So let's go to Adam Smith. He says, Scott Atherton mentioned up to 10 manufacturers interested in DPI 2.0 last weekend at Road America, if I heard rightly. Do we have names of these manufacturers or are these things really tight-lipped at the moment? I think I know eight or nine because I think I've written about eight or nine. Let me see if I can remember them off the top of my increasing, increasingly balding head. Uh, we would have Ford, Ford, Acura, Mazda, Lamborghini, BMW, Lexus. All right. Uh, I think Porsche's in the room. Uh, so what, that's seven now? Lord, why am I forgetting a couple of the other ones? Um, I guess, did I mention Cadillac? I'm not sure about Cadillac if I mentioned that. And Nissan. Uh, so I think that would take us to all the current manufacturers as well. So that would be nine or so. Tenth, I cannot honestly say. I don't know which one is the tenth. I can say, I've written about it. Try and have at least some little new thing to drop in here, and hopefully someone picks it up uh, during listening each week. I have heard Stephen. That, and I am slowly pursuing this because I don't have the time to pursue it quickly. But I have heard from some very credible people that a manufacturer that is not currently involved in DPI has decided to get involved in DPI with the new 2.0 regulations in 2022. So mm. that is something I will indeed be pursuing and hopefully shining a little bit of a spotlight on. I actually heard a lot of DPI news over the past, I'd say, week. Not honestly centered around Road America, State of the Series, and that itself being the big generator of things. Just, I think it's honestly, I've had a 
tiny increase in the amount of time I can focus on work and calling around and asking things like I would normally do. And from those efforts, uh, I've heard a lot of very interesting things, none of which I can put into print yet. But yeah, positive stuff for sure. So there you go, Ed. I brought in some positive. You got the negative. We'll see who wins the war. <laughs> we'll have to just sit and refresh the page on racer.com's homepage, won't we now? Ah, positivity. <laughs> we eagerly anticipate the news. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Andrew Back on Facebook says, we already know that sports car racing is a as a rule, is a rule following exercise. But was the heart disqualification in TCR one of the worst examples we've seen? A bronze-rated driver was disqualified from the win because his professional co-driver didn't spend enough time behind the wheel, except he did drive enough, but IMSA stopped the clock when the overall leader takes the check flag. Is there a way to fix this rule? If so, how would you do it? Andrew, thank you for raising this question for sure. So this involves... Chad Gilsinger, the uh, team owner slash principal slash the bronze rated driver in question in the uh, the Honda TCR entry and his teammate, our friend, good friend, uh, and Dinner with Racers co-host as well, Ryan Eversley, with them being disqualified for what I think was being eight seconds shy, six seconds shy, whatever the exact number was, shy on meeting minimum drive time uh, on Ryan's behalf. Obviously, if you saw any or all of the uh, Michelin Pilot Challenge event, it was rain-affected, the amount of total green time they had. Again, there was lightning in the area. There's all kinds of things affecting it being just a normal race uh, length. They got it wrong, right? Uh, Even having to adjust, as every other team did, right? Every other team in the race had to adjust to the same things and got their drive time correct, I haven't heard of other disqualifications for it. If so, that's my ignorance. But we aren't talking about half the field failed to get the drive time right. This team is, at least as I know, the only one, but primary, the, the primary one we know of, uh, of this disqualification happening. So they made a mistake. They understand the mistake. I believe the error in knowledge was not knowing that the drive time clock for everybody stopped the minute the uh, the winner crossed the finish line. I wasn't aware of that as well, by the way. Where I think mm. the rule adjustment needs to happen, Andrew, without a doubt. And this is going to be a, a brief step up onto the Christoph Bushu's Hammer Emporium-sponsored Weekend Sports Car Soapbox. I completely agree with a team running afoul of a written rule and having a time-based penalty applied for breaching a time-based rule. I get voiding points, possibly, uh, as a result of violating this rule. A disqualification for being a very small amount of time off on drive time, I realize that whether you're one second off or a hundred seconds off doesn't matter. You're just as out of compliance. The amount of time you're out doesn't really matter. It, the rule is based on in compliance, out of compliance. It's clear. The team was out of compliance, a disqualification in our eyes, in the official results, it's as if, 
the Hart team was never at Road America, its sponsors and partners, investors, whomevers, weren't there, no value, nothing to show for it, other than the very public embarrassment through a disqualification? Are you freaking kidding me? Stephen, I know that if we look at the trends in modern racing and officiating, we can say that in IMSA, in many forms of the sport, not all, but in many forms of the sport, we've migrated towards harsh draconian penalties for seemingly any kind of infraction. NASCAR is the king of this. Your car's Mm -hmm. ride height at the right rear was off by a millionth of a something. We're going to shoot and kill your family, light your house on fire, (laughs) and possibly drop a nuclear weapon on the town where you were born. It's you know that doesn't seem that harsh to me. So well, again, sometimes they try (laughs) to bury it, but it's it's just the thing where you go, you just create living panic and and fear and mental nervous breakdowns among people because the even the smallest tiniest oh my goodness mistake leads to this thing where you go and the crew chief is fined twenty five thousand dollars and suspended for six weeks. What? for a mistake if we're talking oh we found the nitrous oxide bottle you're cheating you're truly trying to circumvent the rules by in crafty ways trying to get an advantage now that disqualify like get them go get them if we're talking you ran a foul of minimum drive time and we clearly can see it's by a modest amount so it at least helps contextualize what happened it wasn't five minutes off it's a matter of sec okay that we could see is a mistake if that is your goal to try and sneak that by we know that nobody would intentionally try and come up six seconds short and then just argue that right they didn't win the race they weren't winning the race that was again that would not have been a rational cheat circumvent the rule thing see if we could get a by type thing so again we can just default to the fact that strictly a mistake you want to take the points away you want to give them a time penalty to drop them further down the field got it i'm good with that uh ran afoul the rules application of a penalty got it disqualification imps has lost his damn mind if it believes a dq for something like that or anything like that if the punishment even remotely matches the crime. And so that, I think, Andrew, is where a big rethink needs to take place on this rule and any others. Time, points, monetary possibly, knowing that we're not talking about teams with a ton of money here, cash in hand by and large, play in those areas. We get that. That seems to match. This, we're going to the max on penalty doesn't fit the last quick note to this and the reason why it doesn't fit could a factory team true factory dpi gtlm team handle 
the financial ramifications and whatnot, probably for a smaller team like this in a feeder series that is doing its best in a time where finding money is really hard. And I realize this is the Honda associates, you know, racing team and whatnot that they're Honda affiliated, but it's not a factory team per se. Um, this is just something where you have to think about the ramifications of your penalties. And if you are going to think about the maximum amount of embarrassment you can apply to someone competing in the Michelin pilot freaking challenge, not even in the top class in GT4, but the second tier of the second tier championship, and you're going to disqualify them, any team over something like this and how that might cause sponsors and paying drivers and whomever to react and go, oh, geez, really? That's how you guys do this here? Man, I uh, can't wait to go turn golfing into my favorite form of recreation and save myself millions of dollars. This is just a drastic lack, Stephen, of looking at the big picture and realizing that in a time where we are not oversubscribed with teams, or money, or sponsors, or paying folks, if this is how you think things need to be meted out in terms of justice, yeah, this is the thing where your paddock gets smaller because they realize you're out of control in terms of recognizing what really needs to be done and how penalties should be applied. This makes no sense to me, and it's not because Ryan's a friend. It could be any other team. This is not in the best interest of the sport. If going to a DQ for anything other than truly egregious penalties, right? You decided to weave down the straightaway and knock every car on the left and right off the track and into the wall. You caught, got caught cheating by bolting seven turbos onto the thing. Got it. Unless it's truly egregious, get the damn DQs out of the rule book. Mm. So just to be clear, that was a soap, soapbox moment for you there, Marshall. Look, I announced it up front and called out the sponsor. I mean, if if that wasn't a yeah. soapbox, I'm just I was just I wasn't just sure clarifying? whether. Okay, whether, yeah, I'm just clarifying just to make sure I know the difference. Hundred <laughs> percent. Another question about pilot challenges coming up, and it's from Adam Bowman. He says, "Just a quick question: When did the Camaro GT4 return to competition? I haven't been able to pay attention to the MPC series much this season." Uh, well, we've had the Rebel Rock team with it, rocking away there. Uh, we did have the step back. Oh yeah don't believe so but they might have uh. keep in mind and this is just again i i hate that i have to use this excuse i haven't been to a motor racing circuit for you know it's gonna end up being about three months i've done my best to stay connected all right cannot at all times so they may have been there the whole time when i was still able to travel and i was just ignorant so i can't honestly say here i wish i, I if i was really good uh at, at doing my job properly adam i would have read your question before we recorded, gone and research, and then had something right in front of me. I also realized, I, I too, believe- maybe this is a cop-out. Adam could do that, too, if he wanted. So sorry that I can't be the guy that has the exact answer, but uh, that's just a little insight into my deficiencies. I'm yeah, disqualified. Well, I've just done the Wikipedia search ever, I, and appear uh, as Rebel Rock were there for, since the start of the season. Okay, well, good. <laughs> and I deserve a disqualification for my lack of knowledge here in preparation so um i'm not going to talk for six seconds mm. 
So I'll talk for six seconds instead, and I'll read out Thomas Pendergrass's question on Facebook. It's about BMW. He says, could the struggles of the BMW M8 be partly attributed to several of the other top drivers, or sorry, of their top drivers getting poached over the last few years? Could we see Andy Prio and Jerry Hand returning to BMW now that the full program is coming to an end? Interesting one, Thomas. Never really thought about that. Probably because I can't see the angle there. The drivers competing in their vehicles, I would say, are mighty fine. Would I rate any of them above an Andy Prio or Joey Hand or Dirk Mueller or some other past BMW types? Probably not. Uh, it's a good one, though, knowing that there are some ridiculously talented folks coming out of a uh, shutting down or shutdown for GT program. Yeah. I would say using my finest Graham Goodwin parlance, watch this space for sure. <laughs> and not just on the BMW front, I would say I mentioned in an article or maybe I don't remember what I mentioned. I think it was an opinion piece and it was written in a fairly oblique manner on the Corvette side keep hearing that there's a, a general mindset to move towards modernization, modernizing many things within the program with the CAR coming. I would, mm. I would extend that Stephen, knowing the age of some of the drivers and tenure of some of the drivers in the program. I'd be very surprised if we went into the next WeatherTech sports car championship season without seeing at least one, maybe even two new names involved in the Corvette driver side. So back to Thomas's primary question, you bet, man. I wouldn't put the BMW M8 struggles down to rotating cast of drivers and maybe some of them in the car right now being less capable than others. I would not. I don't see that. But I do see the fact that there are monsters on the market now available uh, on the IMSA side thanks to Ford deciding to step down, that will absolutely cause the folks at BMW, Corvette, I don't know about Porsche, uh, but I definitely think we could see some different names involved uh, who would have been rivals this year and uh, could be allies next. Mm. Well, I, before we move on, I'll just quickly say, I think with Thomas's question, there's something in that, but I think it's more for the WC side. In the WC BMW program, and I talked to uh, I talked about this with Graham during the season, they swap drivers and swap the lineups pretty much every single race during the super season. And I think that genuinely was a factor in some of their performances because there was no chemistry between their lineups, really. And you had the situation where you're talking to BMW drivers and you're like a month away from the next race, and they haven't got a clue whether they're going to be there. They were swapping them around, and I think when you've got the rest of the class with the same drivers every single race, pounding out laps in testing and practice and qualifying, I think that does make a difference, especially when you're getting a program off the ground. But anyway, that's a bit WC. Uh, we'll carry on with Ryan Terpstra. As we start to figure wind out down, too, should say. As we start to wind down in yeah. and get towards me just firing questions your way in the most aggressive American manner. Fantastic. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Another lie. Ryan I Tush. love it. <laughs> I'm good at lying though. You you are, you're I young and good at lying, man. You're you going to have a fantastic career in this sport. Yeah. 
especially as a journalist. Stephen, you've got to be a good Stephen Kilby. Oh, you just, he's going to be smiling, but man, there's just going to be freaking acid behind everything there. I love it. I love it. Fantastic. Right. Yeah, so Ryan Terpstra asks, I can't figure out why so many teams committed to a strategy that required a yellow flag at Road America. Still, after two hours and 40 minutes, there was a freeway dogfight at the front. Maybe if Cadillac can drop some weight, they can join in the final in the last two races. Hashtag BOP. So is that a fat joke you're throwing at me there, Terpstra? Lose some weight? Oh, Cadillac, got it. Sorry. I mean, I hope you'd throw fat jokes at me. I mean, come on. Um, trending is a big part of what happens in race preparation for race strategists and engineers. Uh, it's really interesting. Our friend Mike Hall, for example, from the Chip Ganassi team, both in IndyCar and sports cars, they do extensive trending look backs, not just the year before, but the past five years, there's traditionally been three LOs at this race by the numbers. The first one tends to happen on the opening lap. We then have seen the trends say that somewhere around the 42 minute mark, the next one fall. I mean, so there's real hardcore investigation trend following to help form decisions on how should we strategize what kind of strategery should we do uh, for this upcoming race, Ryan? So as for why would so many commit, I would say their their recent data tells told them that that's what to plan for. And when they start to see things not happen, it's really a race to who recognizes that and adjusts and who holds out to the belief that based on trends, it should happen. Therefore, I'm going to stay along that yellow is going to come at some point path. And so that's frankly just as, as simple as it is. Uh, and then there's just those who say, look, we've got a plan. We're sticking to it whatsoever. And I would say those folks are the ones who by and large tend to succeed the least, Stephen, because mm. flexibility in an endurance race is the absolute key to being successful. Among the many other things, assuming you've got fast car, fast driver, fast crew, everything, it's those who are reading the race and adjusting to what they see instead of holding to a, a pre-written plan. They tend to be the ones that end up on top more often than not because they see what's happening and make calls to stay on track to get to victory lane. Mm. We're coming to the end of the IMSA section now with not so much a question, but like a, a little anecdote from Dimitri Kostaras on Facebook. He says, I have some anecdotes and a question regarding the recent race attendance comments on Twisk. There was talk that IMSA at Watkins Glen this year seemed to have a low attendance. And I have to say that there was a line of cars attempting to get in before the green flag this year that were not there in 2018. Grandstands at the Glen are massive and seemed empty, similar to the LMS at Barcelona that has already been mentioned. But there were people everywhere around the circuit and in the fan village. There was a 20-minute wait for a sandwich around three hours into the race. I don't think the increase in attendance at the Glen from 2018 to 19 is solely due to the beautiful weather this year. According to the IMSA broadcast, Road America was uh, very well attended as well. I've heard Marshall mention before on the podcast how much he enjoyed the ill-fated Baltimore Grand Prix. I was It was briefly my local race, and I attended both the IndyCar and ALMS races there all three years from 2011 to 2013. The grandstands were packed. There were large crowds who came for the festival atmosphere. 
The ridiculous excuses for the city cancelling the five-year contract were an Army-Navy game at Ravens Stadium in 2014 and an American Legion National Convention in 2015. There were unpaid bills by the race promoters and lots of complaints about traffic closures. Despite being a very well-attended event, bringing world-class motorsport to the heart of a densely populated part of the country, the city and locals wanted to sabotage it from the beginning. The only money and effort Baltimore was willing to spend on sports was giving an exorbitant contract to Joe Flacco after winning a Super Bowl. And NFL fans know how that turned out. My question to Marshall is, what is it that you loved about the Baltimore Grand Prix? Was it the, the similarly was it similarly raw received by other journalists, teams and drivers? Was it a disaster that lo- local propaganda claims it, um, it to have been? Thank you for the wonderful podcast. I haven't missed an episode. Wow. Well, A, thank you for the essay, Dimitri, and that's not said with snark or sarcasm. Uh, We certainly welcome stuff like this on the good old week in sports cars. It's not just supposed to be the yappy faces here in good old America or the UK. Uh, It's awesome to hear from y'all with just thoughts and general whatever, so don't hesitate to send those in on whatever topic, please. I love street races. First of all, Dimitri, I've been to many, many in my life and loved the idea of one being in Baltimore. I was already a big fan of the town of Baltimore. Nothing to do with sporting leagues, though. In the 90s, my absolute favorite television show, which happened to be on NBC, was Homicide, Life on the Streets. And it was it was the best, just truly the best show. And it was based in Baltimore, uh, the, I believe the main, wherever their, uh, main police station was, was on the Harbor and the track itself was kind of opposing it on the Harbor. So for me, just having grown up watching the show that I loved them filming in and around the streets of Baltimore, just felt like I knew the place well. And so having been a huge fan of a show, oddly enough, that was based in Baltimore to then be able to go to the track and just being a town where it's like, oh, this kind of feels a little familiar. Its setting, I thought, was just kind of majestic with uh, where it was located, some really tall buildings uh, that you could look up to and feel like you're in the heart of the city, but also some interesting things as well. The circuit layout was super unique. Uh, there were definitely some challenges there. We had the railroad tracks, which certainly made cars fly, Indy cars, LMS, um that i loved i know some folks hated it i hey, look if you're gonna take a road racing vehicle and pitch all four wheels off <laughs> or two uh look like it's doing some sort of bucking bronco routine at a high rate of speed i thought that was phenomenal there's some great photography to be done there too overhead in the parking garage shooting through the trees with the cars passing directly below through those trees just presented glorious shots as well in the team that's the team the town just seemed to be very welcoming everywhere we went just had a really good vibe so i realize that in the last week or so a lot of highly negative things have been said about baltimore as a town by folks here in the good old united of the states i can just tell you that as someone who was born and raised within 10 minutes of san francisco and spent a decade of my life living in san francisco there are absolutely parts of San Francisco that are horrible and there are parts that are amazing. And I spent about a decade of my life living in Oakland. Same thing to be said there. Any major town, uh, I think you're going any major, major city. uh, I think you're going to find 
the beauty and also some of the pain and Baltimore is no different. So I know that while very recently in the news, a lot of things have been said about the town, Stephen, I just happen Mm. to love it, but I'm also the guy that when I lived in San Francisco for a long time, lived at the far end in one of the most impoverished areas and it was not clean. It was not anything. You wouldn't take your parents there. You wouldn't take your girlfriend there. I was young at the time, so I didn't really care. I loved it. It just, there was character and real people and a lot to enjoy. So that's maybe my leaning. Uh, I'd rather go to the slightly dirtier, grittier part of town. Uh, so I certainly wasn't put off by any of the things folks might have been a little bit questionable to them about baltimore so i just loved all of it to come back to your primary question dimitri and maybe the biggest thing that i loved most was a new town wanted to have major motor racing there we don't have that happen nearly as often as it once did and we i know what indycar is yet to announce its schedule next year i can tell you within one one circuit Every single venue, more or less where it's going to fall in the calendar. IMS has obviously revealed their calendar last week. Every single thing's identical. We knew it was going to be identical beforehand. Those are, that's good for fans, existing fans. Consistency is good. Date equity is good. But from a building something new, getting a feel, getting new folks in to see something they hadn't seen before, maybe become new fans, growth, get, getting into a new market, that's what I loved most about Baltimore. I thought that folks who hadn't seen this kind of stuff, sports cars and open wheel really did take a shine to it, Stephen. But unfortunately that experiment ended prematurely. And speaking of prematurely, although that has nothing to do with anything here in terms of a segue, let's go. That's right. It's time for you to be Graham Goodwin. Weck. Aslam, Elms, Aco. We're changing categories, moving to your discipline of expertise. Starting with our man John Foreman. He's back again asking about the Aston Martin Hypercar program. It's even spelled MME with the program. So uh, proper spelling for you. I know you wouldn't understand it if there wasn't the extra ME at the end of program there, Stephen. John says with Aston Martin recently in the headlines for losses and decreased production. Do either of you think this will affect their plans for hypercar? Could this push back their debut by a year or rule out customer cars in the first year? Hope everything is still on track. So although he posted the two of us, it's all yours. Make it or break it. If you get this wrong, we're stopping the show. (laughs) No, I think there's nothing official about any of this and and you wouldn't expect there to be. Um, But the way I understand uh, the way this program is funded is that it's funded by customers and it's coordinated by F Racing, and it's not necessarily um, Aston Martin Lagonda throwing tons of money at it. So, as far as I can see, this wouldn't have a major effect on the hypercar program. Could it? Yes, but right now, I would say that the hypercar program is continuing on as as planned, um, and I'm told they're, they're they're all still hard at work as as other guys from Toyota. So right right now, I don't think there's any sort of you know any screaming headlines to be written just yet. Um, we'll just have to monitor it. I mean, it is it is strange to see Aston Martin in the headlines um, having financial issues after after such a, 
a fantastic decade that they've just come off the back of. But we will see how that develops. Not a, as you mentioned, not a surprise. What I'm curious to see, Stephen, this is just purely on the road car side. We're not talking racing. They've done a lot of specialty customization minded things. There's been a lot of flashy content coming out vehicles you and i and i think everybody would love to have oh my goodness that's amazing i want one of them wonder though with the transition of the aging vantage platform and again some efforts to modernize that just strictly a volume standpoint and it seemed like boy there's a long period as you mentioned where a lot of cars were sold there was a, a truly for a low volume manufacturer they did have one very popular uh, high volume sales angle with the previous just straight up lovely v8 powered vantage obviously there was a v12 uh, option in there as well which sold to a lesser degree but just curious to see if they can get back on track with more modern version of the vantage platform or who knows if there's you know something else that really could take off that is just flying out of the proverbial showroom floors to help put more money back in their overall bank accounts. But again, as you mentioned, the financing for what they're doing in hypercar might not be truly tied to that angle. And uh, Alex Eichmiller also asked a question here about uh, the same thing. But from the flip side, how much, Stephen, do you think the ACO and FIA are sweating Aston Martin's financial situation whatsoever i don't i don't think they'd be sitting and sweating about uh, about this over anything else um anymore that i just think that they're probably more concerned right now about making sure that a third manufacturer comes aboard and hypercar before they start writing off the ones that have already signed up to it when i spoke to uh, gerard Deveau, uh, um in barcelona um he seemed to be pretty positive as i'm sure you'll know marshall he can be sometimes just positive about literally everything um he seemed to think that you know aston martin and toyota were putting a ton of effort into what they're doing and that it's all progressing nicely i think they'll be monitoring it as as i think everyone will be in the paddock um but but i I don't think they'll be necessarily panicking all we need is danny bahar to announce that lotus is joining Mm. all problems will be solved that'd be brilliant now that was a nice little bit of sarcasm and snark from my end all right we're going to move on to our man sean crockett says this might have to wait for graham's return i say no though steven can handle this (laughs) earlier in the year when talking about hypercar graham mentioned that ferrari had a particular reason for wanting this to happen quote now as it looks like they're not going to play in hypercar we maybe be let in on some of the reasoning why any thoughts there what can you share with us i know you and graham have a daily 5 a.m meeting of all secret topics in the <laughs> extra private daily bunker mm. yeah so i wrote about this actually in uh, in a piece i wrote for racer.com never and heard of it no me neither um so just search it i think google will probably find it on like the fourth fifth page if you if you did type that in um <laughs> Yeah, so hashtag uh, breaking exclusive uh, scoop. Yes, yeah, breaking exclusive scoop indeed. So I wrote about all the different uh, manufacturers that are technically in play right now beyond Aston Martin, Toyota, and 
what we understand with Ferrari is that they were trying to shoehorn GT Plus into the regulations for hypercar. Um, that was their big sticking point. That was what they wanted. That was their spot in the room was taken over by the fact that they that that's what you know that's the way they wanted to shape it, and it didn't happen. Uh, and that's just what you know, you'll know, Marshall, from what we've got with DPI and how this is all forming. You can't make everybody happy, and I've, you know Ferrari. Ferrari aren't necessarily going to dive straight in. They're not desperate. Um, I think they'd rather look at their Formula One program in much the same way that McLaren is right now and work towards making sure that's where they want that to be first before they start throwing big money at a massive hypercar program. So it's it's GT Plus. That's that's the reason we believe. Um, And as that's not happened, they've kind of taken a step back from it. But... I'm sure they'll be monitoring, as many many other manufacturers that have been inside the technical working group meetings will be. I would just add to this, knowing that Formula One is their number one outlet for showing the world who they are, their competitive genes, and that's been the case for long before you and I were born, Stephen. I don't foresee that ever changing. If Ferrari were to come to Hypercar, I have to believe it would be the same type of model that has kept them in GT racing, albeit through works affiliated, not don't call it officially a factory type deal sales. If there's money to be earned through sports cars and it can be hypercar, I definitely believe Ferrari would play as for them deciding sports cars will in 2021, two, three, whatever be the thing where they show the world who they are through competition Again, there was a time where they did that, by and large, when you and I still weren't born. It's been a long time since they looked to this. I just don't think the modern hierarchy there would view hypercar as anything other than a place to sell things and hopefully, I don't want to say profit center, but at least offset some of their costs in other forms of racing. Sean has another question, which I can answer quickly since I actually know the answer to it. says, do you Mm -hmm. think that Porsche's recent signing of Andre Lauderer and Neil Johnny to their Formula E team suggests they are planning to return with a hypercar and want to ensure they have some top-line drivers with LMP1 and Le Mans winning experience. I would say that if Porsche were to return, Sean, to hypercar, it would be coincidental. Uh, I know that when I spoke with Neil, this would have been almost 18 months ago when he was venturing off to do a little bit of Formula E with the Dragon racing team. There was a very real attempt for Porsche to partner with the Dragon team, flood the team with truly dozens and dozens of engineers. I had heard it was something like 30 engineers they were wanting to commit to this Formula E program to help them get ready and learn uh, for their own program when it came forward. So this transition out of LMP1 hybrid into Formula E it's a, not only a real thing that they truly want to do, not just a stopgap thing. Where do we put some drivers from sports cars until we can get back to sports cars? This is something they're taking very seriously. And so someone of Neil's caliber with pretty significant open wheel experience, Andre as well. I look at this honestly as Porsche fully committing immense talent that happened to do really great things for them in sports cars, obviously Andre with Audi for many of those years in uh, the Volkswagen Audi group. But I just see this, Sean, 
as Porsche saying, these are two badasses we know, fully benchmark, fully understand their skills and capabilities, having seen them in the fastest prototypes in the world. They also have very extensive open wheel experience. This is the perfect fit for us to move them into Formula E, not just, hey, we need to find a home for them because we have sports car plans in the future. Uh, If they were to use them in the future in sports cars, in hypercar, again, I think that'd be a convenience. Don't think that's the plan at all. Let's go to Jacob Bame. Says, do you know if the WC means to address the timing and scoring system issue that went public just before the 24 hours of Le Mans? Could we hope for the series to revamp the look of their timing service and add essential features like sector times or at least enable some customization points? What should we expect to see in September at Silverstone for the super season season opener, and that's a lot of words. Stephen, let's start with the letter S. Yeah, so I think he's referring to the uh, timing and scoring uh, website that was live up until the sort of halfway through the week during the Le Mans Twenty Four Hours, which is a bit Private, of an independent website, yeah, independent, non-affiliated, um, non. I believe no agreements in place as well for that data to be used. Yeah, so that got that got taken down um, upon the request of the ACO and FIA, I believe, and they haven't said anything since then regarding big changes to their timing and scoring system and what they make available to the public. What I do know is that there are conversations in the background concerning the streaming package, the app package, uh, maybe with some additions. It could be quite fun going forward, coming in for next season. Um, Graham, I believe, was part of some of these conversations, and he's he's talked to me about it a few times, about some of the things that they are discussing. But I can't be specific on whether their timing system is going to be any better. I don't think you're alone, though, in thinking that it's not quite up to standard, especially if you're having to pay for it. It's It's not as good as you know many of the other championships that we cover, Marshall, uh, that have more sort of more adaptable timing scoring systems where you can you know go through lots of options and personalize it and make it look the way you want it which you know when you're staring at a timing screen for 12 hours can be quite nice it's quite kind of a nice luxury to have as well as fans at home but um the sort of short answer to <laughs> to this is uh, I couldn't tell you right now whether they're going to make the changes but they are at least looking at, at how they can improve their their paid services going to go to Jacob once more. So this question regarding the new spec Michelin LMP1 tires for privateers. Gray mentioned last week that they had a very limited access to the tire during the prologue after being initially told they would not have any access at all. Meanwhile, I recall pretty vividly Michelin saying that they would be happy to supply tires in time for Le Mans 2019, maybe even Spa, uh, and it was one of the teams that voted no. It would mean that Michelin was ready back in june which in turn means the tires do exist in physical form he says my question is insert dramatic pause here please how what happened along the way why were they not in barcelona and how could it affect the privateers learning curve with the new spec tires stephen kilby please tell us I spoke to Graham when I read this question, um, just to make sure uh, my memory served me correctly. He was on vacation. I believe, you bugged him on vacation I, for a I, week in sports car question. I, Bad, Stephen. Bad. I mean, he was 
he was checking in. He was asking if everyone's okay. And I said, look, I'm going to do a service to the listeners here. I'm going to be <laughs> a good a good journalist and double check my facts. Oh, why? Why said, would you do that? Fine. Single source. <laughs> just pull it out of your ass. No one will know. <laughs> yeah. So the LMP, LMP1 teams did have the 2019 Spectres at Barcelona, at least some sets of them, and didn't have like the full range to be able to do two days of running. With, with a complete, just use, just solely using the 2019 spec tires. I know the Genetta guys um, have been impressed by the 2019 tires. They've run them in multiple tests as of SMP when they before they pulled out. Bellion also did as well. Um, I think part of it is because they want to make sure they have enough ready for the first round of the season at Silverstone, and they knew that Barcelona was going to be an incredibly tough circuit to kind of read into the performance of these tyres because of the because of the temperature and some of the teams gave that feedback as well. Uh, it was the same case in GTE because in GTE Pro, I mean, it, it, there was a slight change in the fact that Aston Martin told us before the test they weren't going to have any 2019 Michelin spec tyres at all for the test and they did in fact have a small selection. Porsche told us they didn't have any tyres um, during Barcelona, Barcelona test uh, for 2019. So it, it, I think it's going to be a combination of resources, the fact that it, has, it wasn't really that long since we came back from Le Mans, and the fact that these teams have, have kind of already been out testing with them before the prologue. So I expect that they'll be all ready and ready to go for Silverstone. Um, it's more more a case of when you look into LMP2 and the tyres that Michelin and, and Goodyear will be providing there, whether they reveal their full hand for the season or not. Uh, whether they bring all three, three spec tyres, uh, the A, B and C, to the first race, that's still to be decided. But as for the rest of the classes, I think it's going to be business as usual. Um, I think they'll all have a full running with the, the 2019 tyres. Speaking of full hands, we're at the final Weck Aslam Elms Echo question. We are full. This is full up here. Honor goes. It's true honor. I know, Ben, you're saying Stephen Kilby's answering my question. Oh, my God. Ben Cutting says, with LMP3 being sped up for 2020 and LMP2 being slowed down in 21 to accommodate Car Car, the official weekend sports car name for Hypercar, is there a risk the two classes will end up on a similar performance level in the ELMS? It's certainly a topic of discussion in the paddock, mainly because nobody seems to know what the answer is. They haven't. Uh, made a decision as of yet in LMP2 uh, whether they're going to officially slow them down if so by how much how they're going to do it there's discussions between the teams now you know talking about rumors and speculation surrounding this but the answer is they they don't know there is obviously the risk that they will be bunched up we are going to see the LMP3 cars a little bit quicker I think there's like an extra 50 horsepower or something in the new engine for this year so I'm going to be a little bit quicker and the aero is obviously going to be updated for for the Elysium, we've got new cars coming in, so by nature of that, we are going to see quicker LMP3 cars. And in 2020, we we will probably see slower LMP2 cars because I think that's the route they're going to take. It's going to be interesting to see how they how they manage all this because they're going to have a lot of explaining to do to some of these teams and subdrivers who have invested so much money into the P2 platform. Um, they've spent a lot of money on new cars that are more expensive to run, to then be told that. They're going to be slowed down to sort of similar pace levels that the older cars were in. I think it's going to be a little bit of a tough sell, but ultimately everyone's just going to have to get on with it. But I think the P2s are 
far quicker than the, the P3s when you compare the P3 to GTE pace levels and something like the ELMS. So I think even if they do run in the P2s, they'll still be a little bit quicker than the P3s for it to be fine. I think the the, the big thing here is that they're going to alleviate the pressure on the GTEs uh, because the new P3 cars are now finally going to be able to pull away maybe a little bit more, especially when amateur drivers are in the cars. And I think that was more of a problem that needed fixing. Um, but but you know, I will be Graham um, as you were Graham briefly a little bit earlier and say, "Watch this space," because right now uh, they're kind of working on so much, so much of the finer details of hypercar that they haven't really told us anything privately or publicly about about what LMP2 is going to look like. Hashtag Watch the Space. We're we're working mm. by the way on a shirt that's going to sell a high volume, possibly as many as three. Could be four, depending on whether I order one uh, of our favorite Marshall Pruitt podcast hashtags. Me personally is there, I think, at the top of the list. Uh, hashtag front nose. That's another one of my just most hated redundancyisms. Uh, but we might have to include some others. The uh, the hashtag watches space. Uh, the hashtag uh, it is what it is, which is our favorite Juan Montoya ism. I don't know if it's a hashtag, but we might have to include the uh, hashtag mm. Bushu's Hammer Emporium. Um, we've been coming up with just a lot of stupid things, and so maybe they need to be on a T-shirt. Um, who knows? All right. It is time, officially, Stephen Kilby, to move to Hegenerau. We're going to move to General, and I'll grab the first two because they're kind of meant for me. I will throw the rest at you. Then we're going to get mm-hmm. to fun. Then we are going to finish knowing that we are at, I don't know, almost an hour and a half, something like that in the show, and we only have three minutes left. No, we're going to do our best here. <laughs> First one from Damian Peachman. Marshall, with uh, which circuit in America, in your mind, would be best suited for SRO's eight-hour race? The immediate one, which I think would be the obvious answer for Americans, but fits a really growing request, is Road America. We hear every year leading into and coming out of the Road America IMSA race. Please, why isn't it long? Why isn't a thousand miles? Why isn't it something six, eight, ten hours? That is a circuit that seems to me, although I don't believe there's much local awareness or fandom for intercontinental eight hour racing. If you tell folks that the GT cars you see turn up every year for IMSA, and I realize World Challenge has been there too, but. Uh, I don't think it'd be a hard sell to get across to folks who love endurance racing, true long form endurance racing in the general Midwest, in particular at road America, where there is a history of that, but a long time ago, if IMSA can't do it, won't do it. I would say there is an audience waiting for the, uh, SROs eight hour race, Damien at road America period, full stop, make it happen. Go to the next question related. Jamie Bender, says, in reference to the California eight hours moving to Indianapolis Motor Speedway next year, why do you say mid-Ohio would be better than Indy? Um, I would think IMS has better infrastructure and just about every way to host a, host a race. Can you please elaborate on your feelings? It's something that never happens. People don't ask me to elaborate on my feelings, yeah. Stephen. Don't tell us uh, your feelings. By the way, living in Cincinnati, Ohio, I would go to either track for an event, but uh, like mid-Ohio better for its atmosphere. He also says, 
every time you say we have X amount of minutes left, I love looking at the actual amount of time left and then having a good chuckle. Hashtag never cut it short. That's why I mentioned it. We only had three minutes left. I do too. Jamie, it's it's a long running joke. Uh, I would say of all the people on the planet who spend hours of each week speaking into microphones, I have the worstest grasp of time. And so I'm glad some folks enjoy the fact that I say, hey, we got about 20 minutes left. And then 40 minutes later, we're still going. Um, All right. Why do I believe Mid-Ohio would be better than Indy? Very, very simple. People in Mid-Ohio, in and around Mid-Ohio, love themselves some sports car racing. Folks in Indianapolis, I'm not saying there are folks who do not love sports car racing, but by the numbers, Indianapolis is not the place you go for sports car racing. The numbers of folks that showed up for the old Grand Am race there, pitiful, pitiful. There's nothing there. There's going to be nothing there when the eight-hour event moves to the IMS uh, road course. I love IMS. Those people are dear friends. I want it to succeed. It's not going to succeed. So, again, as I mentioned last week, unless the SRO just keeps paying for it to be there year after year, regardless of how many fans turn up, if it's just paying to play, it can keep going for however long they want. If it's staying is based on ticket sales, Stephen, and true fan turnout, it's going to be embarrassing just because it's not the place. The the location, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, as famous as you can get, it's just not a place with history. It'd be like saying NASCAR is going to, I don't know, Jamaica. <laughs> We'd love to go. It'd be amazing. We'd have the best tans, the food. I mean, again, it'd be amazing. Folks still might even turn out out of curiosity because, you know, big international motor races aren't held there. But I'm just saying this is not a NASCAR loving location we think of. So, yeah, it'd be odd. Well, when you throw an odd international, call it European GT sports car event into a place, Indy. Indianapolis, Indy car, Indy 500. Um, yeah. All right, man. Hey, it's cool. Just don't get your hopes up. Heck NASCAR. Steven has been there since 1994. I think 95, the brickyard 400. It was popular for a while with something new and different. It's a ghost town these days. So yeah. Uh, if it ain't Indy car, at Indianapolis, they don't even get folks to turn up for the Indianapolis Grand Prix, which is the road course race, which takes place just before practice starts with Indy 500. If it's not the Indy 500, um, just set your expectations appreciably low. All right, we're going to move on here. Can, can we be before you move on, yes. Marshall? Can we just be honest with ourselves for like five seconds and say what we all want here is for that to be a race at Sebring as part of a new triple header with the Sebring Twelve <laughs> Hours and the WC Thousand Mile Race? Because for that five minutes we had during that week where there wasn't any track time, I remember you specifically saying to me, "Do you know what I wish we had? More track time. I wish we had more GT3 cars. I wish we had more SRO stuff here." 
And I think you're just being a bit dishonest, if, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't Michael. mind being outed that that is true. I believe I also said we need to move the spa 24 hours to the uh, Super Sebring event as well. So sorry. Uh, we've also taken a few other Dubai. You know, we've moved that. We've got that now. So honestly, I guess should well, all right super, we'll super do this it, it was a lie i mean i wasn't revealing my true intent but we'll also have another hashtag breaking exclusive scoop moment here on the weekend sports cars if you're coming next year to sebring the event actually starts on monday so it's just a series of 12 8 and 24 hour races that go non-stop from monday up through saturday night ending at about 10 p.m so God. it's going to be busy yes yes and the other thing too which we can reveal they're actually building replicas exact replicas of the sebring circuit kind of like a car park where you know you park and you go up to the third or fourth level whatever they these are all running concurrently which is pretty cool all week long so the ground level that's the actual traditional 12 hours of sebring imsa race if you take the elevator up to the second floor to the newly built replica circuit above, that's where you'll find your WEC race. You move up one more level, that's where you find your intercontinental eight-hour. I believe fourth floor, they're holding Spa 24. Again, it's going to be amazing. Tallest series of racing circuits ever. Still not quite as high as Bathurst, top of the mountain, but we can reveal this on the weekend sports cars. I feel good. Should we write about it or just leave it here, though, Stephen? Definitely write it. You know what they say. If you find out something you don't even know if it's a fact, just write it. Write it and ask questions later. And then delete it if you get called out for it being complete BS. Yeah. Yes. And that, deny it ever happened. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, man, we're getting dark here. I love it. Ed Joris, it's your fault. Uh, let's go to Brian Cohn. Hey, Brian. Why don't the manufacturers play a bigger hand in forcing the sanctioning bodies to create rules that allow for greater use of their cars worldwide. There's no excuse for IMSA not using GT3 or WEC not using DPI. Should mention here that IMSA uses GT3. It's the basis of its GT Daytona class. A car car will be a total failure, just as LMP Hybrid was. LMP Hybrid was a raging success for many, many years. Anyone who couldn't see that riding on the wall was blind. Car car Hasn't will not. Yet. Yes, will not survive. <laughs> The coming worldwide economic downturn. Give manufacturers a worldwide platform to play upon, and they better weather the storms. Series benefit from more cars being able to race more events, and the paying spectators benefit from seeing their favorite drivers and manufacturers at races worldwide. The ACO FIA could have had Penske Acuras and Ganassi 4 DPIs, but instead choose by Collis? And we're supposed, we're supposed to believe... They know what they're doing. Same for IMSA and their GTLM, GTD rules, GT3 slash GT4, and go racing on a worldwide scale, kids. So I'm not sure if that was statement, question, or what, but it was sent in and we read it, and I thank you for that, Brian. We're going to go to Mark J. Cardella, and I thank you, Mark. Very few people include their middle initial. I didn't miss that. This year with the Mazda's DPI notwithstanding, what's each of your best examples of sanctioning bodies using BOP to ensure a manufacturer's victory? 
That's not loaded at all, is it? No. So are you going to go with this first? Oh, hell or? no. I read it. That means you got to answer. I might answer when you're done, though. Oh, damn. Um, hmm, sanctioned body using BOP to show manager victory. He didn't even listen, Mark. You uh, can read it back. Uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think. I mean, if you put this, the biggest cynic cat on me ever, you, you can't really look much further than what we saw at Le Mans the first year Ford were there with the GTE car. That that looked a bit odd to me. Um, but it's hard to like come out and actually say that they used BOP specifically to ensure that one manufacturer win, would win because that's speculation. But that, that would be my answer is Le Mans 2016 because that did get a bit ridiculous. That was my choice as well. And it was evident <laughs> the entire time uh the inverse would be and i guess we'll i'll just stick with teams that i know very well was i think the year before or maybe it might have been the same year in 2016 i apologize that corvette was just molly from the outset at the official test and i mean it i just remember the conversation being why are we even here right you have given us no reason to be here because you have penalized us so heavily we have no chance, and yet we're spending millions of dollars and promoting the heck out of it. And this is the centerpiece of all we do during the year, and you've given us no chance, no hope. You have given us no chance. Not we didn't do our job. We haven't tried hard. We haven't tested. We haven't invested to make the cars better, faster, etc. You, through choices made and typing values into spreadsheets and outputting them into BOP for the entire class have taken away our chance to even be in the show. Like <laughs> we're not sure we'd make the podium in GTE am much less make yeah, even remember where the podium happens to be for GTE pro. So that was my inverse memory of not just ensuring quote victory, but ensuring you absolutely would not even have a reason to be there. Uh, let's go to two more here in general guy in a grumpy bear suit. My favorite name of all those who submit questions, super GT and DTM announced their joint race this week, which got me thinking, which race would you like to see GT 500 cars added to as a class? I'd love to see what they do against DPIs at Sebring. What says you Esteban Kilbe? Before I get into my answer, the way that this question's written down on the piece of paper in front of me implies that a man, in, a guy in a grumpy bear suit, was the guy who made the announcement. <laughs> so, I'm thinking, well, who is he referring to that looks like a, a guy in a grumpy bear suit? Is this, you know, is this you know maybe, really looks like a grumpy bear? I mean, it's not as if I stay on top of anime, but yeah, maybe there's some sort of cartoon we don't know of, you know, a guy in a grumpy bear suit. It's number three in Japan. So they let that cartoon character announce uh, racing stuff. I bet that'd be pretty cool, right? Who needs press releases? Have, you know, anime characters or cartoon characters. Let that be a takeover for one week worldwide sports car racing series. Pick your favorite domestic cartoon or anime series. Let them do all your press. Every press conference that we have to sit through, Marshall, would be better if it was presented by a guy in a grumpy bear suit. I'm not going to lie. Well, we do anyway. have a, plenty of Muppets in there, and we might be <laughs> we might be some of those Muppets I'm referring to. But, yes, you got a great point. Yes. Uh, so 
Where would I like to see GT5 500 cars as a class? I think it would be great to see them as a class in something like the Spa 24 Hours, just to give that race a bit more variety. And I know that Graham sometimes can go on a little bit about how the Spa 24 Hours has kind of lost its way and it isn't quite as interesting as it used to be. And I'm totally in agreement with that. When it was back in the days, we had GT1 cars and GT2 cars and all sorts of random, bring whatever you like and we'll put it in a class. Those days, they were fantastic for me. And if you had GT500 as a class with a load of GT3s behind it, I think that would just be really spectacular. It'd be really fun. It'd be really dangerous and they'd probably expand the grid to like 90 cars just to make sure that there's literally no gaps between any of them when the race gets underway. But it'd be cool. So Steven's answer, our dear friend in a grumpy bear suit. Uh, and I'm also, we were going to need more information as to what makes a bear suit grumpy. Or is there a particular, like folks look at a bear suit and go, oh, it's a grumpy bear suit. We don't know these things. We want to know them. Please help us with your next submission. Steven's answer comes down to, I think the best place to add the brutally fast GT500 cars would be an event where they would cause mayhem and destruction and calamity. I love youth. You're so awesome. Um, let's go to our final question in general. This from, admittedly, if, if we were to hand out such an award, if it would be considered an award, maybe a penalty, if there's such thing as a weekend sports cars OG original gangster right turn lover our man right turn lover so awesome to meet you at sebring earlier this year sends in and says in wet races it tends to be visibility rather than say danger of aquaplaning and whatnot bringing out either the safety car or full course yellows would different tire tread patterns or less arrow or different arrow help create more safe green flag racing in the rain I'll take that because I know you don't know a damn thing about it. Uh, yeah, actually, dear right turn lover, one of the significant changes that I've seen, and this is in open wheel and sports car racing, probably over the last 10 years or so, uh, seven to eight, is it seems there's been a odd, somewhat global mindset of if we're going to make rain tires, we are going to abandon the super aggressive flow, massive amounts of water uh, through the sipes type design. Seems like, and again, I know this is a generalization. I know it's a sports car show, but I've also seen it happen in IndyCar, for example. I've also seen it in Formula One, where brain tires work, but if there is really, really heavy rain, tend not to have the really aggressive tires produced to handle it so intermediate type rain something where it's not holy cow type rain we can handle that but if it's raining very 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 a lot very much if it's just ridiculous rain things where i've been at races in the past where that's been the case and they keep the green flag out and they let the race continue it's been because there have been tires produced and on site that can channel that water uh, out from beneath uh, beneath the tire uh, and help manage that situation. I've seen less willingness to produce those types of tires in recent years, and I don't know why. The other part, though, which we can't ignore, it's not as if ride heights in general have gone down 
over the last five, six, seven, eight years, like they were high before, and now they've just magically become low. They've been low for quite a while. But what we have seen, interestingly, and I just think it's a, a matter of its reality, is we have had some very big, big downpour type events that come to mind where there's been so much water on the track, Stephen, that you cannot evacuate enough beneath the vehicle to allow it to avoid aquaplaning. So there have been situations where, dear right turn lover, we have seen events that even if, (laughs) name the brand, had the most amazing can flow a trillion gallons per second type rain tires bolted onto the vehicle, that'd be great for the tires. But the actual middle section of the vehicle, whether it is a flat uh, underbody or something with tunnels, there's still enough of that flat surface uh, just in a hydraulic, uh, not hydraulic lock, but actual being lifted up off of the track due to the liquid itself. Even if it's being compressed, however much that it can, there just comes a point where there's so much water beneath the uh, the area between the tires down the middle of the vehicle that it just simply lifts up off the track. There's too much, can't get it away. If there was full width tires across the front and back of the car, maybe that could help somehow. I don't know. But we have seen scenarios where we have to stop the show or we have to just trundle around behind a safety car or full course yellow, whatever it is, uh, because we cannot have these cars going at speed because they just are simply floating over a, a very dense portion of water. So that is... Uh, Maybe the answer there. All right, Stephen, we're going to do it. There's only three minutes left, but we're going to do it. Actually, we're not even at two hours, so I'm feeling really good where we are here. Uh, Should we slow down? Yes. We're going to do, it's going to be the eight hours of uh, intercontinental, eight hours of weekend sports cars. Let's go to fun. Let's close the show on fun. I have been prattling on, throwing them at you. I'll let you throw a few at me. I'll toss a few back. Then we'll say goodbye. Mm. So do you want me to start with the first one from James Counter? I'll throw one at you. He says uh, he says this on Facebook. He says, do you think the car car regulations should mandate that a stick shift and not one of those semi-automatic ones should be used? That would make drivers really earn their money. Uh, Americans don't use stick shifts, do they? You don't even know what this question's about, do you? You're automatic out there, aren't you? Well, you if we <laughs> If we're blaming people, it was a Brit who came up with semi-automatic paddle shifting. So your countryman, John Barnard. So, yeah, this is on you. You created the problem. You own it, sucker. Um, <laughs> you know, here's the the f- weird thing that I think of from time to time, James. I, let's see. My wife and I own a vehicle that has the that has an option to do paddle shift, but it's automatic. I have driven vehicles that have paddle shift a little bit, but by and large, if it's not automatic, it's manual. My entire life more or less has been in manual driving something with a manual transmission. And so it's just odd for me to think of younger race car drivers who, whether it is, picking up their hire car, getting the rental car to go to the racetrack or the vehicle that they drive at the racetrack who've only ever known automatic 
or paddle have really more or less never known stick shift. And we're seeing that becoming the trend, even in lower formulas in open wheel, where traditionally it's been some sort of manual box. Um, You know, if we're talking global MX five cup, obviously a little bit different there, but even in the lower rungs of sports car racing, the training series there too, Steven, we're seeing this being a thing. So I love the idea of going quote retro with a, a manual mm-hmm. box in car car. I don't know if the manufacturers playing would want to do that. Cause it might not align with what they're doing with their road vehicles, but in terms so of drivers, the ones that are racing. exactly. But in terms of drivers really earning their money, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if using a manual shifting platform compared to paddle is where the money earning comes from. I think variable like, Hey, we're not going to tell you, but at some point during the race, you're going to, you're, we're going to shut off the paddle and you're going to have to go manual. Now that would be fun. Who could adapt? Hopefully it wouldn't be mid shift or like breaking and trying to pass one into a corner and you're flipping the paddles and they're doing nothing and you're having to scramble and push in the clutch. But, um, I don't know, maybe variability like fan boost in formula East, even maybe there could mm-hmm. be fan screw where they just decide who they dislike the most and they can vote to turn off ABS, turn off paddle shift, uh, you know, just <laughs> shut things off, but just randomly, you know, it uh, sounds, it sounds like something SRO would put into the sparse 24 hours to try and make the strategy good. So like a, a joker lap where you once every six hours, you have to do a lap with a stick shift. Hashtag fans. What they do with pit stops. We're there. Yeah. We're all over it. Uh, let's see. I'll throw the next one at you from James counter as well. James, you are just, you are, are scoring the points this week with questions. Loved both of the Ulrich stories last week. But there's at least one more unasked question. Which driver would you send on a silent retreat? Which I mentioned something that uh, Ulrich Boretsky, um, Audi's well-known engine man, said he does that at least for one week per year. Goes on a silent retreat. Um, he says, keep up the great work, Stephen and Marshall. And I believe that first part was just a polite thing to say to you. And he doesn't really believe you do good work because I don't. Um, yeah, who fact. would you send? Steven on a silent retreat and he said driver. So you can't say me. <laughs> so just so I'm clear, because I, I haven't listened to the entire episode from last week. It's a silent retreat because somebody's a hothead and they need time to, you know, have a reality check. So is this a driver that's a complete nutcase and you're sending him away to let him, you know, rethink his recent performances or is this or just because you think he deserves a holiday because he's cool or, you're just sick and tired of listening to them. That's how my, that's where my mind went. That's why okay. Alan McNish came up instantly. <laughs> oh, this is a, this is a great one. It's yeah, a great one. This might be the um, best question of the episode. We haven't gotten all of them. There's still a chance, but, uh, Hmm. Oh, this is hard. Okay. So if I'm thinking about people that are drivers that I come across regularly, that I think, I can't be asked to listen to you anymore. Who am I thinking of? Oh, you're just, just no, but I love the fact that you're willing to do this. You're just killing your career. But do it. Say it. Say it. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll Alonso. Be- that's, that's your answer, right? Um, I'll go with this. I'll go with Kamui Kobayashi. And the reason being <sighs> is because 
No, wait. You are a horrible I've person. I've only ever spoken to Kamui Kobayashi once. He said he hates uh, you, so I hope you know why it's only well, been once. It's funny you should say that, because I've only spoken to Kamui Kobayashi once, and it was on the gridwalk at the, at the Spa WC race in 2013 or 20, yeah, 2013. Um, and I went up to ask him a question, and he was not the most polite person and told me to basically turn around and go the other way, having never spoken to me before and having no idea who I was. And it was rather rude. And that might've been just because he was having a bad day, but I've kind of never spoken to him again because I've always thought you didn't even take the time to speak to you know me when I was what would have been about 15 at that time. So I've always thought, no, I'm not talking to you anymore. So yeah, Kamui Kobayashi, you're probably a fantastic guy and I should probably talk to you at some point soon, but you can go on the silent retreat and when you come back, I'll, I'll, I'll have a chat. So I'm doing my best to not support you or be polite here because we just don't want to make it easy for you. We want, we want you to have to earn your stripes. He was a complete twat the one and only time I attempted to interview him. And so I think it might be the person more than the subject. Um, this would have been... I think the Coda ALMS WEC weekend, and I don't know when, 23, whatever year he drove, was AF course that he drove for? Mm, yeah. Uh, um, had a question for him, didn't know him. Uh, the amazing, truly amazing Fiona Miller introduced me uh, in the garage. So, like, oh, great, really kind. And so, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a, a twat myself, but. I'm really fortunate to you know interview amazing people, uh, open wheel sports car, you name it. Uh, some of them are, are pretty good friends. Some of them have fairly large profiles, and none of that matters. So going and interviewing Roger Penske, it's a treat. It's a blessing. Someone that I have a very good personal relationship with. And when I need to speak with Roger, a super billionaire, want everything in the world, blah, blah, blah. It's just talking to Roger. It's not some, oh my goodness, I'm in the presence of, because that's not who he is. And I can name many other drivers, winners of major championships, Formula One, this, blah, blah, blah. I mentioned McNish as a joke. I mean, Alan is as accomplished as they come and could not be more gracious, fun, giving, you name it. This is a person who has earned things in life. That if they wanted to put on airs, if they wanted to big time you, ah, uh, get away from me, kid. They could. They have that option because they've earned it. As it sounds like Steven is typing a mad note to uh, Kobayashi to tell him off right here. Um, I'm fortunate in that regard to interview a lot of people that have done some amazing things in the sport, legends of the sport as well. All with the power to say, Pruitt, go away, you jackass. You're horrible. I don't like you. You're ugly. You're stupid. Whatever. Could say all those things. They'd probably all be true, but they have earned the right if they wanted to be that guy. So it was funny about this brief and one and only time I've interviewed Kobayashi for the same reason as you going, screw you, dude, was Fiona, who is the sweetest person in the world as well, introduces me to him. I may as well have just walked over to the roll-up door and interviewed the roll-up door to the garage because it was as interested and as forthcoming. It would have been less dismissive than Kobayashi. The guy 
grunted, wasn't busy. I could tell that there was no session coming up. There was nothing pressing. He, I didn't catch him in the middle of doing something. That's the other time too, where guys, Hey, could you come back? Could you hold on? Not right now. Truly the guy sitting in a chair in the AF course, back of the garage by himself doing nothing. And so the lead FIWC press delegate takes over a journalist says, hi, Kamui, this is someone, so-and-so, we, a couple of questions for you. And just dickish, pricklish as well, super short, gruff answers, dismissive, while sitting down as well, and not really, I think he might have glanced up at me once, but couldn't be bothered to say hello, shake a hand, look up, any kind of human-to-human acknowledgement. And so this is the part that's maybe unique to me, and I realize that I have a dickish and pricklish aspect of my personality too. I'm not the smallest guy. I realize that, you know, I could certainly lose a lot of weight and be slimmer, but even if I was very, very slim frame-wise, I'm not short and I'm not narrow or skinny. You know, I have a fairly athletic build. Kamui Kobayashi is not the biggest guy in the world, at least things here i mean we're in texas at the time where everything is texas sized most people people who are small tend to realize you know don't poke the the grumpy bear suit guy don't you know (laughs) none of that and so in the back of my mind i'm like really this dude's going that direction like i could snap him in half for fun and no one would know it's texas it's legal you can kill anyone in texas and you actually get a prize you get a free rifle when you do that by the way don't know folks know that um so part of me is like on the primal element going really that oh i mean for real dude you want to give me lots of attitude you want to be if that's how you want this to go stand up (laughs) <laughs> let's go let's go out back i mean you know you want to turn this into grumpy a-hole type whatever thing cool dude let's forget the racing part let's man up and have some fun so that was all fleeting in the back of my head but the main thing that came out here steven and i hopefully we're just talking here it's, there's only three minutes to go by the way um i'm staring at this guy sitting in the back of the af course gt garage in a folding chair by himself at circuit of the Americas, sweaty balls, crazy hot and humid thinking to myself, this little man once in formula one, once receiving the adoration of the world is now squired away in abject obscurity. No one really even knows that he's here so much or cares it's not even for a full works, big, high-profile GT team, much less prototype team. And yet you're wanting to carry on the airs as if I am attempting to interview Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, name whomever it might be, where you would say, now that is a freaking superstar. They have earned whatever attitude they want to give. Not saying it'd be right to big time me or you or anyone else and act like a jerk. But they've at least got the credentials where if they did act that way, you go, okay, I don't like it, but at least I could see it. You got it. You've done the thing that allows you to be that guy. Instead, Kamui 
brief and forgettable Formula One career by and large, tucked away in the back of a sweaty garage, driving for a works, kind of not works, kind of works GT team, just deciding he is going to be the princess of princesses, can't even look up and acknowledge another human being and just treat with complete kind of scathing indifference or hostility, someone who actually wanted to speak with him and meet him and ask a couple of very basic questions in this three minute interaction, Stephen, it was honestly uh, something where I could have written 5,000 words on it because it was so fascinating to observe all the dynamics at play. And then I think the person I spoke to afterwards uh, on something totally different was Darren Turner. And again, you talk about someone in GT racing who has earned all the accolades, all the success, all the, you name it. And you go and speak to Darren Turner immediately afterwards and realize this is how a race winner champion, supreme, amazing talent. We will be speaking with reverie for decades after he's retired. This is how someone behaves. Even if Darren didn't like me, I'm fortunate to believe that he does. Even if Darren didn't like me, he has the class and grasp of, aha, member of the press isn't a total clown, has a question to ask. Let me spend a moment or two. And as a brand representative, or maybe just a decent human being, not leave this person with a want to put his fist through the back of my head at the end of the conversation. Mm. Was that a soapbox moment? I don't know. Or was I'll that just it. a story? I'm not sure. I'll count it. Should we, should we implore people to rush to Bushu's Hammer Emporium to buy something, though? Or should we move on? <sighs> two minutes to go, on. by the way. Two minutes to go. Oh, my God. There's a lot of questions for two minutes to go. Right. So, Let's pick three. Uh, Let's pick three questions remaining on fun. Because I have okay. a phone call coming up here with someone that I yeah. can't mention who it is, but I got to take it. So let's pick three, and you pick two of those three, and I'll pick the final one because I'm a pricklish. Okay. First one I'm going to go with is Josh Rigian on Facebook. He says, are there any sports car rivalries that you wish would be turned into a movie in the style of Rush, and who would play the protagonist? Go on, Marshall. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. I mean, I'm just trying to think here stateside because we certainly have some some grumpiness going on here. There have been some. I mean, they're nice people. They're really sweet, nice people. So maybe it wouldn't be a huge drama movie. It might be more of kind of like a Hallmark Channel Lifetime Network kind of sappy thing. But I think coming out of Lime Rock with the Ben Keating Twitter meltdown and <laughs> uh, Catherine Leg kind of thrown in there who wasn't really responding, but Catherine's former boyfriend, Andy Lally, who's like a legitimate mixed martial arts, kick your behind type guy. Again, I don't know rivalry as in it's been going on for a long time, but I certainly think there's some stuff uncovered between Ben, more on Ben's side, aim towards Cat. I think there could be something there. 
Uh, I think mm-hmm. there really could be something there. I don't know. I mean, Rush was super well done. I don't know if this would be worthy of a, a actual go to the theater type thing or just kind of a 90 minute movie on a bad sappy cable channel. As well, for- if Vin Diesel was playing Ben Keating, that would be amazing. <laughs> yes, that is needed for sure. Who should we pick for Cat, though? And this is one of those things where, I mean, you can't get this. You can't cast this one improperly because Cat will absolutely kick me in the balls next time she sees me if I get this wrong. Um, granted, she does a horrible English accent. Angelina Jolie does a horrible English accent. I mean, it is so bad. But she comes to mind, maybe. I mean, the Vin Diesel Angelina Jolie. <laughs> oh, yes, that is uh, that is going to be Oscar. Absolute Oscar material right there. Jane? I'm, I'm going to throw an Oscar one. OK, and, uh, this is this is OK. This is Dyson Racing versus Muscle Milk Picket Racing. And you've got Chris Dyson being played as Brad Pitt. And you've got Christopher Lloyd playing Klaus, Klaus Graf. Oh, yeah. my gosh. What are you thinking? Wow. Christopher Lloyd? Wow. Brad Pitt for Dyson? Really? (laughs) Love you, Chris. Oh, I mean, you just got a free (laughs) lifetime supply of AER engines, uh, plaid arts and crafts supplies. I mean, man, I didn't know this was turning into the weekend suck-up sports cars, but there we go. All right. You got one more to choose from among the remaining. Yes. Okay. So this is Chris Alphaby, and he says, if you had to choose a circuit to host a VLN star race, which would it be one funny one and one um, realistic one? <sighs> VLN style. Okay. So it needs to be Carnage. super modern. Uh, there must be some pretty significant harm possible to both drivers and spectators. Um, what comes to mind is something that, okay, again, this is this is probably very obscure, but it's just because it's not used for modern professional races. But I think just about everybody listening would have seen it on some form of Top Gear, Gear Top, American Gear Top Challenge, uh, you name it, documentaries, lots of stuff. And that would be Willow Springs Raceway in Southern California. Uh, mm. It is old. It, it looks... It looks like it's a place where they film old Western movies from time to time, but with a racetrack in it. It's just Is it a cool place to go. Genuine tumbleweeds roll through there. No joke. <laughs> Rattlesnakes are on the grounds because it's high. Well, it's actually not high, but it's kind of high desert ish type setting. Um, there's nothing in the way of modern safety. If you go off track, it is big rocks and other things beneath the car. Although there tends to be a lot of runoff area, uh, it's just something where if you are in a carbon fiber chassis or a GT car with a some sort of aluminum skin or something beneath it, or a formula car that has something that could have holes punched through it, that was always and still is the concern. If you go off track at a high rate of speed, you might be done because the bottom of the car looks like a garbage bag that has had a bunch of holes cut into it. It just 
peppered with destruction. Um, plus, there's some brutally high-speed areas, Stephen, and there's also a couple of corners that just are very inviting for barely qualified drivers to think, aha, the door is open. But those who know, know that it wasn't. And then crashes happen. That sounds like a VLN style event to me. So Willow Mm. Springs for sure. Uh, And then in terms of realistic, I mean, I chose one here in the U S what's one you can think of in Europe uh, or Asia that might be considered that isn't on the calendar. The first one that sprung to my mind was the Bend Motorsport Park in Australia because it's a really long circuit. It's got loads of different layout options. It's supposed to be spectacular. It's a new circuit. Um, Asia Le Mans is going to go there pretty soon. I think a lot of us are looking forward to seeing how that pans out. I'd, I'd go that one because it's. I think it's the second longest circuit in the world. And if you're going to have, um, you know, 170, 200 plus cars racing around it, you'd, you'd want it to at least be quite a, quite a decent length so that's the one i'll go for Stephen kilby opting for length rather than girth as we move to the final question for this episode of the weekend sports cars brought to you by cooper tires and the justice brothers ryan terpstra you're back final question goes to you it says this is inspired by your final question from last week what form of entertainment are you embarrassed to admit enjoying and that you would actually admit to here. Ryan says, I'll admit to being a huge fan of Initial D in the first three Fast and Furious movies. Steven, I'll let you go first because I have to think of my answer. Um, it depends how, how far down the embarrassing scale I want to go just, here. Just, just oh, crack the door open <sighs> okay. and go for a, a light okay. jog. Okay, I'm not ashamed to admit I love a good chick flick. I love them. I, I think they're great. Uh, in fact, when I was a teenager and was you know in high school and was going around friends' houses, just guy friends, we would sit and watch like me girls. It, it was a thing. You know, we would sit and watch these weird, you know, Twilight. I watched that. I mean, I didn't really enjoy that one, but I watched it and I sat through it. Oh, that's um, awesome. I'll go with that. You know, it's it's completely different from the sort of general carnage that I would normally watch. You know, at the movies, and I actually went and watched the most recent Fast and Furious film like uh, uh, a few days ago. And Hobbs that was, and Shaw. Yeah, it was hilarious and really good fun and really macho, and I felt far more like a man than I did when I walked in. But you know, I would walk straight out and walk in to watch a, a film about you know teenage love stories. It's it's a thing. What is your favorite implement to use as a reporter and your favorite movie? The Notebook. I love it. Stephen Kilby. Little did we know. Little did we know. Well, I'm going to stick with the general movie theme. There probably be some other things maybe that come to mind. I recently watched with this rather strange schedule of mine that affords some time in the morning and sometime very late at night when I get back home from the hospital to just be. I recently watched, I think it might have been last week, almost in secession, one night after the next night after the next night, all three of the Expendables movies. Nice. Yes. And that's knowing and recognizing ahead of time 
that just as you love whatever kind of kitschy, as you said, chick flick movies, I really love dumb, manly, testosterone, shoot em up explosion for no reason, uh, epically quotable, stupidly quotable boy movies. Uh, that's what that's my wife embarrassing, calls Marshall. No, but that it is. is. No, but it is. Because, is it? Uh, yeah, well, I'm 48 years old. I yeah, am, know. I'm a man of faith, although I do curse sometimes and take the Lord's name in vain, which I get letters about imploring me not to do that. I am educated. Uh, been to college. Came back the second day. It was good. Um, been to college. Didn't complete my, my degree, but I, I, I'm one semester away from completing my bachelor's degree in computer information science at the University of San Francisco, a very highly reputed university. I have traveled the world. I have a diverse array of delights, both in art, photography, music, huge lover of jazz, uh, read countless books, things that have enriched my mind, my outlook on life. I have an amazing wife, very accomplished wife, someone who I know men say this often, but just kind of a false platitude. I'm not. She is more intelligent than I am. So I've married up someone who has a master's degree and two bachelor's degree as well. She earns far more than I do, very successful in her career. So I live a life, Stephen, where you could say, despite coming from somewhat humble means, father who was a mechanic, uh, et cetera, et cetera, I've done well. I've tried to fill my mind, fill my heart, enrich my spirit. So what is it that I like to watch at the end of a long day? Men blowing each other up, shooting at one another. Um, it could be a superhero movie where I just finished watching the new Amazon Prime uh, miniseries, The Boys, highly recommended, where the lead character, Homelander, a beautiful representation of all that is America, just routinely cuts people in half with his laser vision eyeballs for fun, just likes killing people for fun, secretly. So he's a, the, the world's greatest hero like Superman, but privately he's a murderer and just loves it. And I could not think of something I enjoyed more and made me happier. Dumb, stupid violence. So, yeah, that's one thing. And I'm constantly looking for stuff like that, which just makes my... Set the seven-year-old boy inside of me just giggle and dance up and down with happiness. Now, I might hmm. point back to my mother having a some sort of help in stoking this. I believe I mentioned this on my, uh, my visit to the very first season of Dinner with Racers, that when I was, I believe I would have been 11 or 12, Stephen, my mother took me to the movie theater because I asked, not because she just decided to take me, but I asked my mother to take me to the movie theater so I could see Scarface by myself. And so sitting in that theater, watching people get cut and dismembered by what turned out to be a chainsaw and killings and murderings and stabbings and cocaine consumption by the pound and etc. I didn't know all that was waiting for me, but I wanted to go see it. My mother, I believe there were laws that said you had to be a certain age to see it uh, and must be accompanied by a parent. Ignored all of that. 
let me go see it by myself. I came out with my eyes as if I'd sniffed a pound of cocaine, just wide open, like, oh, my God, that's the best thing ever. Guns and boys and explosions and shooting and murder. And she let me go see it two more times by myself <laughs> at like 11 or 12 years old. So from a very early age, um, I've probably been a little bit askew. So whereas making Stephen Kilby happy involves the notebook, mean girls, something along those lines, dumb boy movies, they really, really do it for me. Um, what about music? Let's close with a, a, an embarrassing musical choice. What's a band that you love that you know you shouldn't? Oh, see, it's difficult with music because it depends on who's asking the question. Like, I'd probably be embarrassed to talk to my dad and say, I absolutely love um, some rap artists. Why would you I know be he embarrassed? Because like he, he, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. He, he's, he'll, he'll go on about it. Um, An older white you know, man saying he doesn't like rap. That's original. Um, <laughs> no, I, I love him dearly. Love you, Dad. Um, but oh, is there a band I listen to that? Um, I don't know. I listen to Will Smith's um, oh. rap album. <laughs> and actually, you know what? That's going to be my choice. <laughs> I cannot top that. Get Getting jiggy with it. No. You know, no. Fantastic. Absolutely. You, were you even alive when that came out? Barely. <sighs> I was a, a mere fetus, oh, I believe. But you have such good taste in American sports. Uh -huh. and, and I mean, they're nuanced. Oh, but this. Oh, man. So you I, can see why you can see why my dad would I, would be why I'd be embarrassed. To tell my dad that I, I didn't to know I had so much work to do. Oh, man. You don't like Wiki Wiki Wild Wild West. Is that what you're trying to tell me? I did see Big that. I did happened. see that movie in the theater, though the Will Smith Wild Wild West movie. Again, dumb <laughs> boy shoot 'em up movie or explosion adventure movie, but it turned out to be garbage. Wow. Okay, I got work here to do. Like this isn't just embarrassed. This is like disturbing. Um, okay. All right. I got work to do. I got it. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, for mine, I, I let's see. I'm looking through iTunes right now because I know there's a couple that's like, yeah, Pruitt, so you claim to be a guy who knows a lot about all these things about music and whatnot, but you have what? Uh, there's a couple there for sure. There's a Black Eyed Peas. I mean, they're one of the worst groups ever. Before they had Fergie and when they were actually just a rap group, not some really horrible thing, they actually, I think it was their first album, they had one song that was really good, uh, produced by DJ Premier, but that's okay. Um, I think, I think... The winning entry for my, all right, there's proof staring me right in the face. Three minutes and 33 seconds of the light. Backstreet Boys. I want it that yes. way. I love that song. Yes. I absolutely love that song. I still do. I, that, that's, it's clear indicator that I'm screwed. So, but that's not something you're just learning here on the final question. On the weekend sports cars. All right, Stephen. Well, we have completed this successfully in 37 minutes altogether. The entire show, only 37 minutes long. So that for those of you. Very long 37 minutes. Yeah, I know. I know. It feels like it. So for those of you just completing the show right now, looking down, I'm not sure what number you see, but it's 37 minutes. Kilby, 
I got work to do on the hip hop front, man. Like we got, that's not, that's not just funny embarrassment that that needs to be fixed. Uh, if, if you're going to be married, have kids actually add to the population. I got work to do there, but otherwise you see we, why it was embarrassed now. Yeah, you see it. I, I do. Yeah. At least you yeah. knew you were, you were a bit miffed first. First you were like, he's going to come up with some rap artist That's amazing. You know, maybe some Tupac, maybe some, Eminem, maybe some, you know, Sugar Hill Gang, some of the, some of the stuff that was groundbreaking. Nope, rolling in there with Will Smith. That's mine. Oh that's, that's, that's what I like. All right. So the question is, Goodwin, lazy bastard, he's on vacation this week, as if he's done anything to warrant such a thing. Um, should we let him back in? Should we put that to a vote to our listeners? Uh, mm. Should it be hashtag Ditch Graham, hashtag Keep Steven? Did the Will Smith revelation possibly taint the results that are coming? I'm not sure. I do know that, for the most part, I'll go ahead and acknowledge, I enjoyed having you as my co-host for the first time here. I could possibly tolerate doing it a second time. That might be it, you know. Um, We did last week, though, ask how much we should charge you to co-host the show. Didn't get any real solid answers, so... I'm still hoping to find out how, what we should invoice you for, the exact amount. I think Graham and I were just going to split it. Um, so that's still it. That's because the number's just too long to fit in a tweet. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. All right, Stephen Kilby, all joking aside, appreciate you taking the time. You know, I'm a big fan of your work and the increasing role you're having in this space as a sports car reporter. And hopefully we can do this more often. Maybe we need to find more reasons to send good old Grandpa Goodwin off to pasture for a week to rest up and uh, get recharge his <laughs> old batteries. Yeah, exactly. Retreat, a.k.a. rehab. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Stephen Kilby. This is the 37-minute-long episode of The Weekend Sports Cars, published here a day later than I'd hoped on August 8th, 2019. Presented to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Look forward to speaking to you next week. 